Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of the Carrier's Edge podcast. Good morning to you all. I am Mark Morrell, co-founder of Carrier's Edge, and with me, as always, Jane Jezrowie, other co-founder of Carrier's Edge. You got to talk faster, Mark. Everybody's going to go to sleep. I'm not talking fast? No, you're talking like you've been at a conference for four days. Well, that's disheartening because I feel like I'm talking fast. Okay. Maybe you just had more coffee than me today and you're more awake. I am, and I've also been on a call. So, Oh, you sound like you're talking super fast. Oh, really? Okay, well, I'll pick (laughs) it up. A little bit of speed. (laughs) I'll keep the pace going really good here then. Okay, all right. We're we're energized, not artificially at all. But yes, I have been at a conference and am exhausted from it. And that, I think, is going to be topic one on our agenda today. Because even though it was not a trucking conference, there was a lot of thing. Well, because we're in trucking and we were at a tech conference, we have thoughts on how the two connect. Well, this was, I would say, about as far away from a trucking conference as we could get. I so think so, this yes. is, Which is funny because it was called Collision, which you would... Uh, think would be an accident reconstruction or safety conference of some sort. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We went to a conference called Collision. Proudly <laughs> proclaiming Collision with a big, exciting font and everything. I think it's a collision of ideas. I think that's the idea. Yeah. It's a collision of different themes and streams and thoughts on the tech industry. So this conference uh, happened in Toronto, uh, but is actually a worldwide conference. For the last three years, it's been, I think, in New Orleans, and they outgrew that, so they brought it to Toronto. Where Started by an, uh, an Irish. An Irish guy who has got a large, similar conference that's happening and happens in uh, Europe in the fall. So Collision Conference came to Toronto. Uh, it was uh, three and a half days of tons and tons and tons of presentations about the state of the technology industry, the future, where things are going, and really big focus on young companies and startups and uh, venture funding, um, all the different ways that people can get funding and had like long periods. Well, every day there was sections where they were having new startups pitching their um, pitching their companies and they had like a competition on this uh, to see who had the best pitch and then I guess the winner got some prize, probably got some funding or something. But uh, over the course of three and a half days, um, they had like four streams going at each time. And every stream had sessions that were 20 to 25 minutes long. So really compact. So tons and tons of speakers. There was a- And the streams changed. So there was like yeah. nine streams, but there were some on... So like Panda Conference was one of the streams and it was only for two of the days. And then that one changed to, um, I don't remember. That was SaaS Monster. SaaS Monster, yeah, um, for people yesterday. with software as a service companies. There was a full stack one that was really digging into the state of development operations. Um, there was another one, uh, Binate IO, that was at the lower level data management. And there was health health conference, uh, health tech, and which is a huge growing area, medical technology, uh, planet tech, which is all green tech and environmental, environmental, agricultural stuff. And then they had their center stage, which was um, sort of general, I guess, sort of general sessions for everybody. Well, and also if you had a big name. So yesterday I saw Damon Wayans Jr., mm-hmm. who 
I guess is a big name, but I think of just his, probably his father. <laughs> <laughs> We're old enough. So we yeah. Um, yeah. And we saw Joseph Gordon-Levitt was there. Yes. Um, he, that was very interesting. Was very good. And we also saw the prime minister of Canada. Yeah. He, he spoke. He did a presentation there did a uh, what they call a fireside chat, although there was no fireside and the fireside chat is basically an interview style. So. Yeah, interview style. And then style. we, I uh, saw the guy yesterday that we saw who was warning everybody about the perils of social media. Although there was a lot of talk about the perils of social media and, and the difficulty with having these three big companies own everything. Well, so that Google was, and uh, yeah. Facebook and Microsoft. Oh, Microsoft. And oh, Amazon. And Actually, Amazon. Really yeah, so ones. Microsoft isn't in there. It's Amazon, Facebook, and Google. He was uh, railing against Microsoft as well oh, that later speaker? on at the Q&A session. But yes, I guess a couple of the themes that came out that were sort of um, surprising for us because it's not things we hear elsewhere. There's a lot of tech people uh, talking about the dangers of tech and talking about the dangers of big companies having all this data, like you're saying, uh, but also many speakers imploring for more regulation. I know. <laughs> I thought a that was lot. really funny. So the, the one that was most blatant about it, I thought was uh, the CEO of Shopify, which is a big company now. Uh, they've gone public and they're getting to be a pretty big entity. And the CEO and, and founder they're a of the Canadian company, company. Canadian company, talking about how they really should have more regulation in tech. Um, and essentially there's no regulation in tech. You can do whatever you want. So um, one speaker that Jane and I both saw. Roger McNamee. Yeah, uh, independently. Uh, Roger McNamee is a, uh, a founder of Elevation Partners, which is a venture capital fund uh, that he started with Bono. Um, and the guy, I think it was the guy who originally started or created Android operating system. There was like three of them together. Or somebody is. There's a, like a VC guy, a tech guy, and an entertainment guy um, that are all investing in a whole bunch of different kinds of businesses. And Roger's been around Silicon Valley for decades. And so he was there in the early days of Facebook. And I think uh, he was an investor in it in the early days. Uh, and now he's written a book where he's just banging the drum about how terrible it is, everything that they're doing, all the data that they're sucking up and all the information that they're collecting about people. Uh, I think it's not so much that they think that those platforms are bad, um, but there, it's someone said... Uh, had the idea, you know, well, if they had to pay you for your data, mm -hmm. imagine how it how that would change everything. Yeah. If you actually had control over all your personal data and, and could, if they wanted it, they had to give you something for it. Yeah. You could rent it out essentially mm -hmm. uh, for specific uses, all of that stuff. So imagine how that would change everything. Well, he also made the really interesting point that um, the European Union has made a step with their GDPR regulation which allows you to have control over the data and to have some say in it. And they can't use your data without your uh, consent, but that only goes as far as the data that you give them directly. So things like your personal information that you enter into a Facebook profile or something like that, specifically that sort of thing. But he said when GDPR first came out or when it was first proposed, the kind of data collection that's happening now didn't even exist. So GDPR only covers like 2% of what's actually being captured. So the larger issue is things like how they're tracking your movements and all the things that you click. 
that aren't data that you specifically give them, but are just your activities. Yeah, so, your behavior. Yeah. Um, and how you're doing that, um, giving them that for free and talking about movements and um, you know, the, the phone companies know where you're moving, every movement that you're making, so they can use that um, to identify patterns and things. Um, if they're like people that are playing Pokemon Go, which is sort of location-based gaming, augmented reality gaming. They track all of that activity, and that can be turned into a data set that then gets monetized uh, to advertisers. So this becomes a huge trove of information that's very valuable to these companies and just makes big companies even bigger. And he's arguing that you should have control over that. You should be the one who says, I will give you access to this data for a fee but only for this specific purpose. And then the companies have to use it for that purpose only and then discard it when they're done. It's like taking a survey. You take a survey, yeah. it's only going to be, you know, it's not going to be shared. Well, this is what people say is that we're not, we're only collecting the data for our own uses. It's mm -hmm. not going to be shared or sold, that kind of thing. And what I think is interesting about the tech industry as a whole is that they, there's a lot of people who really, have very optimistic views of the future and they want to improve the mm -hmm. planet. They want to do, and then somewhere along the line, when you start making a lot of money, that kind of changes because um, Roger McNamee was saying that um, he know he knows Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, and he always considered Mark Zuckerberg a real, you know, what do you call it? Like not an optimist, but someone who sees you know, great things in the future and wants to, wants to, ha ha, you know, be so wonderful. Hmm. And, but he like now, in my opinion, I think he could go down as like a total villain, yeah. even though he's trying to, he was, his original intent was to connect people. Yep. And a side product or a side effect of that was that advertisers got a hold of it and mm -hmm. marketing got a hold of it. And so instead of really using his power for good, he's not, he's got a, um, he's got his, like some sort of charitable foundation that he and his wife are doing, but what he could do in terms of improving people's lives, he's not doing, he's choosing not to do. So he's using his power more for, and I think that this is coming out as well as all of these super billionaires who do these acts of charity, I don't know if that's as, um, I don't know if that's as, as effective as actually trying to strengthen the social, um, like just how society works. So you've got this totally broken society that you have helped break, and now you're just going to pour some money into whatever you think is important to fix bits of it, yeah. but you're not, you're not going to change your underlying structure, although you've, you've made about a, you know $3 billion and you don't need any more money. So mm -hmm. what is the point? What is going on? Yeah, you throw some charity at it so you feel good about yourself and people think that you're so wonderful instead of fixing the underlying problems. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a hallmark of the tech industry and startups in general. You have to be a wild optimist in order to start up a company and to endure all the garbage that you have to endure to build something. So you have to have this unending optimism about how great things are going to be in the future. But you also have to recognize that there are going to be unintended consequences. There are going to be 
things that haven't been foreseen that are going to be unpleasant and need to be dealt with. And I think that's kind of where we're at now is these guys did start these things for good reasons. Google wanted to connect the world and archive the world's information so people could actually access it. So it wasn't just rotting away unused and unavailable, which is a noble cause for sure. And the idea of optimizing information so that you only see ads that actually appeal to you and don't see stuff that you don't care about is not a bad one either. But there's a lot of unintended consequences that go along with that. There's a lot of people that aren't um, optimistic or aren't honorable actors in the model here that are going to use that for their own purposes. And you put, they put a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on these people or on these entities, I think, to keep being those entities. You know, there's a lot of people who are paid by Google and Facebook and uh, Amazon, a lot of people who depend on mm-hmm. them. So if you just chop, like including shareholders, so if you just chop up your company and start moving it in a different direction, that's basically better for everybody as a whole, but there's going to be a lot of screaming from people who have been making money off of it. And as soon as you start making money off anything, then it's really hard to go backwards. That's uh, an interesting comment because one of the other people that we saw there that was also sounding the alarm was Alex Stamos, who was the chief security officer at Facebook, an early employee, and up until recently was you know, uh, one of their uh, senior executives. And now he is sort of banging the drum as well about the problems with them. And that was a question that came up in a Q&A with him about shouldn't they just be broken up? Because there's talk about these companies being too big and needing to be broken up. And he said, well, that's not going to solve the problem. Then you just have several smaller companies that are all doing the same thing that are just as bad, that are just as broken. So multiple broken entities are no better than one broken entity. And I think that the reason that everybody was screaming about, well, not screaming, but people were saying we need regulations, we need regulations is because they can't regulate themselves. It's it's patently obvious to everybody who's looked at it for five minutes. They don't know how to do it. They don't know where to start. There's no way that they're going to agree, to agree on anything because there's all kinds of other special interests that are pushing at them. So it really comes down to, to you know, the government to stop regulating uh, or take away some of the regulations maybe from tracking and put them onto tech mm-hmm. or or start looking at people's privacy and and people's rights a little bit more uh, a little bit more carefully and telling the these huge companies that no you can't do this anymore it's yeah. not going to happen the, the, the unfortunate part is that because there's so much money involved yeah that it's going to take a really long time and it's going to take a lot of bravery to do, and I know that the government of Canada is starting. It's kind of tiptoeing into this, and they're not really even doing very much. They're, well, they're kind moving, of yeah, with that charter that they released. It's a charter, which you know, if we have another election, that charter could go just go away. So it was a really optimistic thing um, that they're doing. Hopefully, they will be able to put some teeth on it. And then, if the European Union is putting some teeth on it as, as well, and looking at that then um, it's going to kind of affect what these companies in the U.S. do. But the other, the other issue is that I think a lot of the leaders of different countries, 
including the U.S., get a lot out of social media. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they would want to to regulate companies that they are taking advantage of. Well, that's the problem is that it's big enough and pervasive enough that people are benefiting from the problem. And some of the people that need to regulate it are benefiting, benefiting from the yeah. problem right now. So that's a, that's a huge problem. It's, it's something that is almost mind boggling. And, but it kept on, like it was a, it was a theme throughout the thing is like, what do we do? How can we fix this? Well, it was one of the themes and that was an interesting one. But um, what I think was sort of larger than that is that was only one of many themes across various different uh, speakers and tracks. And one of the things that we were talking about as we walked down the aisles and they had these really interesting exhibit areas. And uh, you commented that uh, um, this was a lot of startups that tend to be coming out of a particular incubator or supported by some venture fund or something like that. Yeah, like a university or, yeah, you know. Yeah, they had a whole bunch of these booths together, but they weren't even really booths. They no. were, it was this long row of like Not even a table, it was a counter. Counter built out of chipboard. Um, and not painted. No, unpainted press board or chipboard stuff. Um, and then they had like a sort of a little cupboard underneath where they could store things. But these things were like maybe a six foot space and it was yeah. right beside each other. Six One by, by two? Um, yeah, a six foot by two foot thing. And it's basically enough put space to put a, a laptop and a couple of flyers and a card. And then over top of it, they had a sign. Um, and their pitch. And they're the like. Sign, yeah, the sign had the sector that they were serving, the name of the company, and like a two-line description of what they did and then contact info. And they would change every day. So they weren't there yeah. all the days. So you you could go around to these little booths and there were there were tons of them, I would say. There was, there was a, a couple hundred. of hundred. Yeah. And um, you could just wander through and read their little pitches and it was it was kind of interesting it was very cool as an idea but you made the comment that i thought was funny that it was a lot like when you go to a truck show and there's all of these chinese manufacturers together and so obviously some group some trade delegation or government is buying a bunch of floor space and then sort of renting it out to the people underneath it to sell all of their hardware and pieces so it was like a smaller version of that but tiny tiny well they were yeah so they had like i think um like university of toronto or calgary had bought the city of calgary had a whole row city of edmonton had one um virginia minneapolis st paul had one um yeah there was one from northern virginia there's uh one from lisbon uh portugal yeah there was also was it was U of T. Did U of T had a bunch U of, of them? U of T had a couple, um, but then there was also some larger ones where banks had had bought like a large square and put like five of their funded companies in there. So that was kind of interesting to see all these little startups that are trying to do things at different stages. So some of them, uh, there was a section for growth companies that are out in the market that are actually doing things, and then ones that are at alpha stage and beta stage. So what's the difference between alpha and beta? beta they actually have a product um that is kind of not really general release but finished enough that they can get a few early customers to try it out and do something with it they know there's going to be bugs they know there's going to be problems it's not ready for general release 
but you can give it to your select customers that you trust to try it out and give you feedback on or what needs to be cleaned up. And select improved. customers that don't give you any money. That, I think, uh, Usually they're not giving you much money. Yeah. Um, Alpha yeah. is like not even at that point. Basically, where it's an your idea, and hopefully, you didn't spend all your time on just your logo. <laughs> Which some of them clearly have spent more yeah. time on their logo than on their product. It's funny, you know, you go through these booths, and a bunch of them, I'd read the two line description, and they couldn't even tell me what they were doing. <laughs> I mean, some of them, like, I'm amazed you, you have some funding. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of buzzwords there, and yeah. I don't really know what you're doing. All righty. I'm going to pass you by. And there was a couple that I thought that would be really interesting for trekking. I think there was one that was beta that um, did coaching for communication, did communication mm, coaching. Communication skills coaching. Yeah, and I thought, that would be, and it was online yeah. and I didn't get to talk to them, but it was, I got their card cause I want to follow up and see what their website looks like. But I thought, what a great tool to use. Like in trucking, it would be great because mm -hmm. then you don't have to bring in someone to do these communication skills things. You mm -hmm. could do this online and then have a general meeting about it with, within the company, that kind of thing. Um, we also found a great one called Raven Technologies, I think it was. Yeah. Who have this really cool, um, paper to digital solution, which yeah, it's like scanning on steroids, but that scanner, like that was a nice scanner for 350 bucks. Well, scanner and OCR and scans it to the cloud and yeah, multiple, uh, pages and really nice OCR software. Yeah. Well. And, um, so that was, that was really cool. And, and it's funny because there really wasn't anything to do with trucking specifically, but you could kind of see Well, nothing specifically on trucking, but there was somebody that was, uh, there was asset management um, for uh, logistics and warehousing. Um, like that little booth? It seemed like RFID stuff or some variation of that. There was a couple of things that were around maintenance. Um, so that was sort of manufacturing and, um, Volvo was there for some reason. Volvo was there quite a bit. Uh, they had a large booth and one of the streams, uh, on the second day was auto tech slash talk robot, uh, which was robotics automation and sort of the future of transport. And I got a lot of notes out of those sessions. So did they tell you that everybody was going to have to get rid of their drivers and get Autonomous vehicles um, in five minutes. Well, they, we never talked about those sessions that you went to because I went to different sessions. We split up. So those ones, there was one about um, trying to remember it. How far are we away from full automation? And then there was another one that was about, oh, rethinking car ownership, ownership of, of vehicles. So the how far are we away? They actually mentioned the trucking industry a couple of times. The Volvo representative there. Uh, mentioned the trucking industry and referenced the driver shortage a little bit, talking about how automation they think is going to help that um, by basically allowing the trucks to move without a driver, which is kind of a nice idea when it actually happens. But hardly any acknowledgement of the trucking industry at all, other than to say that automation is it will be a great uh, benefit for it uh, down the road. Um, they all think that full level five automation is several decades away. And so this is Volvo who's working on it. And it was the two people from companies that are building self-driving vehicles or self-driving technology, autonomous technology. 
um, full level five, they say is several decades away. And they showed good examples of why that is when they were talking about real world situations. And actually one of the people that I went to on the center stage was the chief technology officer of Waymo, which is Google's self-driving unit. And he was showing some pictures of the stuff that they're dealing with on their, um, when they're trying to teach their AIs, uh, what to look at and what to ignore. And, uh, I thought one great example was, um, they showed four pictures of stop signs, four situations where a stop sign comes up. Some of them you have to pay attention to. And, uh, one of them you completely ignore. Um, so yeah, well, that's what it sounds like funny. Well, why would you ever ignore a stop sign? So the first one was a regular stop sign on the road. Um, like four way intersection, intersection. there's a stop sign there. You see that. Okay. You stop very clear. You know exactly what to do. Um, the next one was a stop sign on a school bus that was stopped with the lights flashing to let kids off. Okay. Well, you stop there as well. Most of the time, but if it's on certain types of highway, divided highways and things like that, you don't necessarily stop. But also, even if you do stop, it's only temporary. So you know that that thing is going to go away. So you may see it farther up ahead, but by the time you get there, that stop sign may be gone. So now you've got a disappearing stop sign that the AI has to understand what to do with, which is a weird situation. Um, And similarly, the third picture was a crossing guard who has a stop sign up, but it's kind of hanging, they're kind of draping it uh, over their shoulder as they're walking back to the uh, walking back to the, the corner, walking back to the curb off the street. So what do you do there? Well, technically you stop there, but again, it's going to disappear. That stop sign is going to be a non-issue once they get off the road. So they need to understand that. The fourth one was somebody on a bike in a bike lane with a reflective vest and a crossing guard style stop sign that they're holding in their hand while they're riding their bike down the road. It was like a crossing guard driving to riding their bike to um, their job. Well, what do you do in that situation? There's a stop sign. It's clearly visible, but you ignore it. Things that you as a normal human driver get, but are context. It's context. Context. Yeah. So understanding context. uh, So that's what they're challenged with. And that was just one of tens of thousands of different scenarios that they're processing and teaching people about. Um, another one was dealing with pets and this seems to be a much larger problem than I would have expected, but dogs darting out onto the street. Um, so they get off leash and they run out onto the street and you've got to have the AI know what to do in that situation. Or when there is a dog, not on a leash near the road, they're small, so it's not a human, but what do you do there? You handle that differently than if it's a squirrel or something. Um, and if you've got they treat them differently based on the size of the thing. So you still need to be aware of it. So you can just run over the squirrel. squirrel. Don't stop. No, just I think it's the, it. the likelihood that the thing will go out on the road. Oh, okay. So Well, for squirrels, it's like 100%. But also dogs, certain types of dogs are more likely to run on the road than others. So they have yeah. enough data that they're starting to be able to predict the likelihood that certain things are going to run out in front of them. And then if there's a, a dog that's doing that, what about, is there a human chasing after them or something? You know, what do you do about joggers? What do you do about cyclists and all of these kind of things? So they recognize that it's going to be a few decades before full level five automation happens. Uh, level four automation, which is not quite the full autonomy, but in certain areas that will come much sooner. And they're talking about it 
um, as being in certain conditions or certain contexts. Um, like the, the example we see all the time in the trucking industry is a self-driving truck out on the highway, out in the middle of nowhere, driving on its own. There's no cars around, it's steady traffic or steady uh, speed. That's much easier. So that's going to come much sooner or specific contexts where it may be particular weather patterns or particular traffic uh, patterns, things like that, that are much more predictable and uh, stable. So they were also talking about how ride hailing and car sharing type services will actually help the adoption of self-driving vehicles because when... And electric vehicles. And electrification as well. Because yes, when you order a car to take you from point A to point B, they can figure out, okay, where are you going? What's the traffic going to be? What time of day? What's the weather? All that. And decide whether or not to dispatch a self-driving vehicle or a human-driven vehicle. And by doing that, sort of ease the self-driving vehicles into the marketplace and into society. So yeah, the electrification thing I thought was really interesting that one of the speakers who was saying that uh, ride hailing actually helps um, increase the amount of electrification uh, because the number one impediment to people buying electric cars is range anxiety. But if you're just ordering an Uber or Lyft or some sort of ride share, you don't care care. about that. You know, in related to that, there was some, I don't remember who, who was talking about it, but, uh, the idea that millennials and Gen Z are really not, or, or the generation that comes after Gen Z really don't want to learn to drive. They're not interested because there's such a, and they were saying that, you know, it might be that now because they're young and single and that kind of thing that they don't really need it. So it's not like you have a family and have to cart things around and maybe that will change. But right now, people don't feel like they need to get their license. And I think we see that with our kids. Our kids, yeah. neither of them could care less. We made our son do it, but he doesn't want to drive anywhere. He wants to take his bike. So it's... Um, now, that's a really interesting one that I think has a huge overlay in the trucking industry because... We've got a, a driver shortage. So the challenge is getting people to come into the industry, but that's on the assumption that there's people out there that have licenses that mm-hmm. are already driving. It's in, uh, impacted even more by the fact that less and less people even want to get a license. Now, I think that that is a geographical thing. And that's what I was thinking when they were saying, and I'm like, yeah, it depends. If you're growing up on a farm, you're probably going to get your license and you're probably pretty happy about driving. But that's something that I was just thinking about um, as well that, that prompted me to, to mention this is that that's also a demographic shift that's happening that works against the trucking industry. Yes, um, in suburban or as they were talking about exurban places or remote rural places, yes, driving is, it's not a rite of passage, it's a necessity Um, you have to get a license to get around. But society is becoming more urbanized. More and more people are moving into cities and moving into suburban areas or moving off of those farms or out of those rural places. And when you've got ride sharing becoming more prevalent or vehicle sharing, like the uh, the e-bikes and the e-scooters and bike rental, all of that kind of stuff that is getting to be in other places, I think the uh, having a license as a necessity to get around becomes less and less of an issue. Yeah, if you're on a farm, you're probably going to need a driver's license to get into town. 
but how many people as a percentage of a particular generation are living on farms right now? Well, or even living in rural areas. Even in rural areas. So you got even small towns like where we are, there are what used to be small towns that have got subdivisions being built up all around them. And transit. And transit is expanding. But even without transit, with ride sharing and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, if you've got 5,000 people in a community, you're going to have people that are doing ride sharing. Um, Or um, ride sharing or, you know, going sort of, beyond that into the whole question of vehicle ownership, uh, they may have a license, but they don't drive very often. So, you know, or they buy a car and then they rent it out or something like that. So it's totally changing the way people think about vehicles, transport, uh, ownership. It's a whole segment of the tech industry now, mobility as a service, where you don't necessarily own a car that sits in your driveway or in your garage much of the time you get other ways of getting around. And someone, one of the speakers that I saw made a reference to, we've changed the entire way that we look at a phone. You know, yes. Remember, it used to be attached to a cord on the wall and you could only, well, unless you had a really long cord, you could only move away mm-hmm. so far. You had to know the numbers. Yep. And you had to you memorize all the numbers. And you call at a time and that was it. And so, but now in the space of 20 years... It's Mm -hmm. completely changed where phone booths don't exist anymore. People aren't looking for phones. They're looking for places to plug in their phones where all the old, because I was noticing that, you know, every place we go to a conference at does not have good solutions for charging. There's just no good solutions for it because too many people need to plug in at the same time and it takes time. So it's, you know, you get very, you get charge anxiety, but that's a whole different way that you look at phones. And I think that in 20 years, we may not treat trucking differently, but we're going to think of getting from A to B very yeah. different. Transport is going to be, yeah, 20 years from now, transport is going to be like what the phone is now. Yeah. So what does that mean for the trucking industry that's trying to get people to have a license, upgrade that license to commercial status? and accept a job where they're sitting behind a wheel driving all day. That is going to be an even tougher job. So automation can't come fast enough because actually if the car or the truck drives itself and you just need an operator there to babysit it, you don't care if the person has a license. Well, you might need to be licensed for something different. So you wouldn't need a license like the way we got our license, um, you may not, you may only be licensed to go in a straight line down a highway and that's all you need the license for. Yeah. And license you can, to operate a vehicle in particular areas. Yeah. It's not a driving license. No, it's you don't know operating how to, yeah, license. Where you don't really know how to operate a wheel or pedals. You know how to push buttons and change controls and change settings and you know what to watch for to make sure everything is running smoothly. I think the trucking industry and They've been saying that, like, the industry has been saying this for a long time, but it's going to be mechanics. It's going to be people who have to fix stuff. And it's going to be more technology-focused than it is, like, gear-focused, I think. I mean, and it's really important to have the gear part of it, the whole, you know, how the wheels move and all of that. But there's going to be another robotics uh, part of it where Mm -hmm. fleets are going to have to think about how are we going to maintain these autonomous, well, not even autonomous, like semi-autonomous vehicles? Yeah. 
So it's not just drivers. You've got to figure out how you're going to um, like sort of adapt there. But what I also think is that there's going to be service providers coming out of the woodwork when oh, yeah. that happens. I think it's going to be like ELDs. Yep. All of a sudden, where there was no ELDs or there was two, there's going to be 7,500 and you have to choose. Well, I have two thoughts on that that you just made me think of. One is a comment um, from uh, Volvo at this session on car ownership and what's happening with it. Was somebody saying, well, if you're moving to a world where not everybody owns a car, because they have car sharing services and they rent it when they need it and all that other stuff, isn't that a problem for Volvo? And the guy said, well, actually it's the opposite because if we've got these other services that actually keep those cars working more often, more of the day, right now the car sits in, sits there and does nothing 20 hours of the day or more. So if that car is actually being operated for much of the day, then it's going to wear out faster, which means they're going to have to be replaced sooner. Um, you know, the car has a, I don't know, a six or eight year lifespan or whatever, or four year if you're leasing or whatever the case may be. But that's based on the assumption that you're only driving a really small percentage of the time. If you actually start increasing that significantly, then that lifespan of the car shrinks, um, by the same amount. So, you know, all of a sudden the car wears out in three years, which is closer to what we see in trucking because they run crazy amounts of miles. So, they wear the vehicle out much quicker, which means people are going to be buying cars and that's going to be better for them that way. So, um, but the second thing that I just thought of when you were, um, talking about, uh, maintenance, um, we went to a session yesterday where a guy was talking about how everything is becoming a service. What used to be products yeah. are now services. So we're moving away from ownership to renting things. Um, or a subscription fees. Subscription or, yeah. service. Everything is subscription service. So we talked about, he had examples of, you know, Netflix as a good example. You used to go and rent a movie or buy a movie. Now you just have a subscription to Netflix uh, or some other streaming service. And you used to buy music, but now you just have a Spotify or Apple Music subscription. Um, and that is happening across industries. It isn't just um, technology. There's a lot of product people, traditional product people that are changing to Adobe. a subscription model. Adobe did that with software. We used to, um, yeah, we used went to, to that session yesterday. Used to we have your CDs of the latest Photoshop. And but even uh, makeup and things like that, we're seeing mm -hmm. it with clothing and the and boxes. Yep. Like that you can apparently, uh, I can't remember who was showing this. Was it the Adobe guy where he was showing like all the different boxes that you could get oh, from yeah. Japan. Yeah, the, the Japan box. <laughs> like 28 box. boxes of things that you can get per so month. So you have a subscription where they just, yeah, you just get things. Um, uh, and they're know. usually around a theme, right? So I know that makeup is one, yeah. but I don't know what. And the other um, thing that they were talking about is adapting to different markets. So all the different flavors of Kit Kat mm -hmm. that when Nestle was trying to get a foothold in Japan, they started, so you have wasabi Kit Kat and uh, cheesecake Kit Kat. And I can't remember But that remember opens up, ones. yeah, it opens up a lot of benefits for the manufacturer and that they can do more of that stuff um, and, and localize it. But it also is better for the consumer because they are not locked into something very specifically. They can use different things you know, you've got a little bit of this this month and something else next month, but it can adapt to your needs, which also was tying back into that car ownership thing 
is um, several people at a couple of different sessions talked about basically cars moving from a product that you buy to a subscription service, which I thought was so cool. The idea that instead of having a car, because I think it resonated with me because I've railed on about it, the stupidity of having this monolithic asset that you have to buy and people have to buy one or they have the mentality that they just buy one thing that covers every possible need. So they've got this giant car that they don't need when they're commuting. Uh, They only use it when they're hauling all kinds of stuff away for the weekend or going to a, going away on vacation or something, but most or of the time, taking their kid to hockey practice, but even then it's way more than, or that time when they have to take four kids and a ton of equipment to hockey practice, that's what they that need. happens once a year or even once every two months, but yeah. they have to have a vehicle that covers cause, cause that's giant asset. So they're talking about that changing to a subscription model where you pay for access to a vehicle totally different model. So most of the time you have a tiny car because that's what you use for commuting. It's efficient and gives you everything that you need. But on the weekend, you need something different to go away. So you send that back and you get something bigger that covers what you need. And you only take it while you need it, what you need while you need it. And that's it. Which is kind of how we, that's kind of our model. And I like the fact that people are, are trying to make a, make it into a system because our model is we get the car that we want and if we need and the car that we want is not a big car and if we need a bigger car we can rent it and yeah. we rent it for the weekend and we also don't have two cars which is weird because we're like probably the only suburban family in the universe that doesn't have two cars and the reason we don't have two cars is because you know we go everywhere together and we're attached to the hip so most of the time we do only need one car but when sometimes we do need two cars and again we rent it and i think we rent cars maybe five or six times a year and you know but that would be perfect to have that system where if you need something bigger you take your car back or or get another one Mm -hmm. to just tide you over and it's kind of like the rental thing, but I, but I can see it um, morphing into um, subscription. The, yeah, a subscription for the entire thing. Although I kind of like our car, so I don't really want to have it just as a subscription. I like the ownership of that. But then I'm yeah, Gen right X, now. so. Yeah, but also right now you want it. We've had our car, you know, eight months, uh, two years True. from now, three years from now. Do you really want it? It's like the Adobe, the Adobe Creative Cloud subscription that we also have. So you get all of the different Adobe products for graphic, uh, for graphic use of so Photoshop, Illustrator, Premiere Pro. Like, you know, if you're doing anything with graphics, you've used an Adobe product. And I hated the way I hated having to buy upgrades. And I think when mm-hmm. we heard from the Adobe guy, he was talking about the 12 to 18 month cycle for upgrades and you have to buy it. And it's like this constant, you know, you feel like you're just getting, you know, ask for money all the time. But with creative cloud, you just get upgrades mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, I'm paying a certain amount a month. That's fine. It's cheap enough. I can deal with that. And I get everything and I get upgrades for free and they're probably making more money off me than they ever have. But you're also but not. But I don't feel like they are. You're not pondering whether or not you really want that upgrade. Because yeah. you just get it. You know, it's consistent every month. So it's better for them because they've got their latest software out into the field where they want it. They're not having to try and convince people to buy that latest upgrade. Um, and that's, I, I think, sort of going back to the car thing. I think that's 
a benefit of that model as well, because now people would look at it and say, well, you know, I can lease a car so I don't have to own it or any of that stuff, but it's still the same. You're basically owning it. It's really, that's a model that is skewed towards the dealer because, um, the dealer is the one that's upselling you on stuff and you have this down payment that you got to put on. And then at the end of it, you've got to go through that process again and go through all this misery to make a decision and make sure you're getting the best deal and all this other stuff. And it's still tons of hassle. The only difference is you don't own the asset and it's a slightly lower payment plan. They, they only created that as a way to get you to buy something that you couldn't otherwise afford. Whereas a subscription model, you don't have any of those hassles. You just say, here's what I want now. And I'm really intrigued by this and we'll be watching people moving. Uh, again, this particular area of the mobility as a service segment uh, and what they're doing around asset ownership and vehicle ownership. And I think there's a huge application for the trucking people there because again, it's the same headaches, except they have it more accelerated because they've got this whole business around what do we do? Are we asset based or owner operator? okay, if we're asset-based, are we buying these things? Are we leasing them? And what do we do at the end of it? How do we dispose of them? So they have entire divisions uh, for disposing of the stuff they don't want anymore. That shouldn't be their problem. There is an opportunity for somebody to have a whole subscription model that just provides the vehicles that they need. So I would be be interesting because you have all the insurance and damage and, you know, what do you do with that? But well, that's still somebody insured. else's, and, somebody and that's, else's it's still problem. Be handled. It's still insured by the person, you know, the um, person who's driving it. It's still the insurance could be working very similar. But insurance is another industry that's totally being upended as well because of the change in ownership, the change of usage types, the way people are um, using their vehicles, what they're doing with them, how much they're using them. So, yeah, there was uh, there was stuff around that as well. There was um people from the insurance industry that were part of these panels talking about how they're changing things and what they're doing differently there as well. So just to change the topic a little bit, I I don't know if you wanted to talk about this, but I, I, I thought that it'd be interesting to mention the audience for this. Like we <laughs> found where all the millennials are. Yeah, all the millennials that you aren't coming to, into the trucking industry, yeah. this is where they were. Yeah, if you want, if you want to find some millennials with... Uh, a variety of interesting socks, then uh, that's where to go. I think we were, I was a little uh, unnerved by this, you know, when we first got there and it's like, just basically everybody is, you know, could be my kid. And the fact that everybody on stage talking as the old venerable, you know, the old wise people of the industry are all Gen Xers and all the people in the audience are all, uh, millennials and it was a it was an interesting change is different much different energy so it was you know in some cases I'd go to a session and be like well I didn't really get anything out of that because I already know that and but the the one that I really liked was the MailChimp guy Hmm. the guy who started MailChimp who's also a Gen Xer Mm -hmm. and he basically was kind of unapologetic they didn't use venture funding they you know paid for it like they mm-hmm. did everything themselves. They kind of started around the same time as we were. So it felt like this guy has something that I I want to hear. But but going back to the millennial thing, all of these kids are basically coming up with these ideas, the, the alpha and beta and these little tiny booths. 
And what I thought was very interesting is I'm going around looking at all the signs and all of the, you know, what the problems they're trying to solve. In some cases, these are not that big a problem. Is that a lot of it had to do with school. And I was thinking that people are solving the problems they know about. Yeah. Well, we stopped all the ones that had education as their category because that's where we're in. And we thought, okay, what kind of educational technology are coming up? And all of it is like K-12 or post-secondary. Yeah. And so some of them that looked interesting, I stopped and said, could this be applied to corporate? And they're like, uh, yeah, I guess it could. (laughs) It's like, well, they've never had a real job. So, so they've they, never been in, a, in an actual yeah, corporate setting. Tons of uh, advertising, social media, gaming. Travel. Uh, travel and hospitality. Like yep. all the places where they've had crap jobs while paying for their school. They've found the problem. And that's great. All of those places will get their problems solved. And education is really focused on university and K-12 stuff. So um, that was kind of interesting. But what I also found... Um, sort of funny and interesting, intriguing all at the same time was that they're really focused on the technology part of it. Here's the product. Here's what we're doing. Here's the product that, that we're going to solve this problem with this product. And they're not really thinking very much about all of the other things that get wrapped around that. The, un- the, the unintended consequences? Is you that what you it, mean? Well, adoption, how you take it to market, oh, how yeah. you get buy-in. I mean, we were commenting on Um, none of these people are talking about, and none of the sessions we're talking about, what do you do to actually make that product successful? Yes, it's great to listen to your customers and to continuously innovate and all of that kind of stuff. Have your social media presence. Have your social media presence. But nobody talked about the importance of getting industry media on side. If you've got a travel and hospitality product, how do you get the travel and hospitality magazines and all of those things to be on your side, to be writing it up and to be helping you to promote it. What do you do to help people get adopted, um, adopt the thing and make it part of the culture? Well, how do you address um, obstacles? All of the things that we had to learn the hard way is, you know, we can say, okay, well, we've got a technology product that helps for education of uh, truck drivers, um, but great. Well, okay, but nobody is saying, okay, well, here are the steps to take to actually get it adopted in the industry. So we had to learn all that stuff the hard way. And we also learned that it was really hard yeah. that, it, you know, they're not exactly the technology. Well, 10 or 15 years ago, people weren't going, oh, this is exactly what we need. <laughs> you know, well, everybody was saying, I don't need that. When it was sort of brought <clears throat> home for me uh, on the first day, we were standing in line, which I hate doing, but we had to stand in line because um, on the opening session, the prime minister was speaking. So they were in a separate venue and separate entrance and all, like, tons of security and all that other stuff. So we're standing in line and talking to people there, millennials. And it happened to be a company, um, a couple of guys out of came, Austin. came out of Austin, Texas. And they're saying, you know, what do you do? And so we were telling them and they're saying, well, so what are you going to do in a few years when the trucks drive themselves? And uh, this was before the sessions where they said that's going to be years away. But that is sort of the. That's generally what tech thinks about trucking. Well, and that's the prevailing attitude in the general public after all of these stories about self-driving trucks over the last year. You know, five years from now, the trucks drive themselves. So what do you do? And I said, well, you know, five years from now, the trucks may technically be able to drive themselves, but nobody is going to want to have an unattended vehicle driving through their neighborhood full of hazardous uh, materials or nuclear waste or explosives or any of these other things, or even like some heavy truck full of lumber or something. People are not going to want that driving 
um, down the road uh, without a person on there. So the cultural and political things are much more significant than the technical challenges. And I know that, and you know, we are sort of working on that with our product. But as soon as I said that to this guy, he was like uninterested. Like it had never occurred to him there would be any societal or political issues that you have to deal with when you throw a product into the market. And I guess now that I'm saying that out loud, a lot of these tech people are throwing a product into the market and there's no regulation to worry about. So it doesn't occur to them. But, you know, and this guy, he had an advertising thing. So advertising, I mean, he's benefiting from the mess that is Facebook and Google. But once there starts to be some regulation, these companies are going to need to get serious about how do we make sure we've got regulatory approval or that we've got society on our side. Now, I guess the ones that are doing the medical technology, they get that. They have to go through a whole bunch of uh, hoops to get approval and to be accepted. And anybody who's doing insurance or financial tech, um, and there's tons of people doing stuff on the finance side, and they start to understand that there's regulatory issues but they don't think that much about sort of other um, roadblocks that are non-technical because they always come through it uh, through the lens of we're technicians. What is the engineering problem to solve? Okay, And they also kind of, everybody's got this model of, okay, I'm going to make this great product and we're going to have 5 billion users in about three minutes. And it's never, and somebody, there was one session that was talking about that. It was like, okay, that guy that we really liked who was saying, okay, well, you have, you know, that many in, in five or 10 minutes, but what are you going to do? What happens in a month? Mm-hmm. Does it go down? Yeah. Do you keep them? What happens? Is it just flash in the pan? Because there's tons of, tons of these flashy things that get, you know, a huge amount of hype and then they disappear. And, um, so what is the better way of doing it? And I think that's valuable to do, especially in this environment where everybody's like, oh, it's got to be a big thing or it's nothing. Yeah. And especially with B2B and which is like a lot of the tech, you know, a lot of people doing tech are, and this is the same thing because they're kids, they're thinking consumer products. They're not yeah. thinking about um, selling to business and, you know, probably in their next company that they will, but you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of places where I see that a trucking conference and a people who do trucking conferences would do well to go to one of these things. Absolutely. And it it would really I think the opposite is true. I think somebody somebody from Collision should go to a trucking conference and see what the concerns actually mm-hmm. are. Because one of the things that somebody said, um, it was the guy who's been around for the guy who reminded me of the, um, he, it was the, the guy who was saying that, um, you have to, you have to make sure that everybody is on board. Oh, I can't remember who it was, but basically you should go and ask people. Um, okay, let me start again. There was a couple of different things. So it, there's a real lack of finding out from your not target audience, what's going on. So there was an ag, uh, an agriculture guy who was talking about selling to farmers that you should go and ask a farmer. Or mm-hmm. when you have a social media platform and you have all of these users, go and talk to people who are not in your target audience and find out what's going on with that. Like going out and f- seeking the other opinion, going and seeking, uh, like, so 
people in trucking should really be asking people in robotics what's going on, what is the future, mm-hmm. and there really needs to be that crossover. I think. Yeah. Yeah, the ag tech guy was interesting, uh, talking about how yeah people come up with all these agricultural products that they think this technology that's going to make life so much better for farmers without really talking to farmers or. And he was the closest to my point about um, understanding the other issues beyond technology that um, get in the way of adoption. Because he said a farmer will only have, uh, farmers have 40 crops in their lifetime. They're not going to take a chance on one of them. It needs to be proven. It needs to be guaranteed because it's a very small set. And I hadn't really thought of it that way, not being a farmer and not having talked to farmers. But yeah, they have a very limited set of what we would call like projects that they're going to do. So are they going to take a chance and blow one of them on some unproven tech? No, of course not. So if you're just a tech person who hasn't spoken to a farmer, you're never going to get that. You're going to wonder why can't we sell our technology to the farmers? So Because you're not solving the right problem. Well, you haven't proven it. Yeah, you may have solved it from a technical point of view, but they're not going to take a chance on you. It's not like having some consumer app that you can throw out there and if people don't like it, they just uninstall it in five minutes and there's no risk. There's no downside to them. Um, you know, if a farmer takes a, a risk on you and it doesn't pan out, they lost their crop for the year or they've significantly hindered their crop, which is their income and all kinds of other things. So, uh, they're not going to take that chance. Uh, but yeah, they don't talk to people to get out there and, um, they kind of only yeah. talk to themselves. Yes. And that and is that's, and that's what trucking does too. They talk to themselves. And that's the point that you made, I think, after the first day is man, these groups need to start talking to each other. You know, the tech people need any of the tech people that are doing something in logistics or um manufacturing or anything that's even remotely related to um the trucking industry need to get out to these different conferences. They should be going to some of these trucking conferences. Now, in fairness, there's no conference like this in trucking. All the no. trucking stuff is association related or vendor related, vendor driven. This was none of those. And part of that is that there are no associations and the vendors that are having conferences are just doing it for their users and very specific. So this is um, something that I've seen in other industries and I think is lacking in, in trucking, which is a show, a B2B kind of show that isn't driven by associations or specific interests. It is just a, a general industry wide show. No, wait, NACV. I guess they're trying NACV is trying to do that. Um, And so I'm looking forward to that to see what happens, but they don't have sessions. Like it's really just a trade show. They're Mm. not doing, and maybe they are, and I just haven't seen it yet. Um, But they're not doing a lot of um, speeches. They're not, I mean, they're certainly not having 700 speakers over the course of three days like collision did. So it's very different, but yes, they all need to be talking to each other. These tech people need to be, coming into the trucking conferences and seeing what's going on and learning the industry that they're coming into and vice versa. Trucking really should be at conferences like this. Well, just to see what people are thinking of and talking to the people who are, are funding all of these new companies, Mm -hmm. like who's the venture capitalist that will fund a technology, like a trucking tech, like a, you know, something for transportation. Where are they? Yeah. I don't think we've ever met one. Or well, we see them. We see the private equity people at trucking conferences, but it's the salespeople that are out there. You know, it's the junior people that are looking out there doing a fishing expedition to see if there's some company they want to buy. They're not learning about the industry. That's not what venture, the venture capital capitalists do in tech. 
they tech goes to them. Right. And they say, I want you to fund this. I want you to back me on this. There's really nothing like that in trucking that I know of. No. And but it was interesting that now I'm thinking about, you know, the tech companies that we've seen come into trucking in the last couple of years that are coming from outside the industry and very clearly have funding and they're hitting those roadblocks because they don't understand the industry. Exactly. They're having to learn. Uh, and you know, we hear the complaints from people about what they do and don't do. And, uh, there's very much a, a need for them all to be talking to each other. Yeah. Cause the way that you market and, and sort of advertise and get people to know and adopt your, your products is not like it is in tech. And so all of these people <laughs> come up through tech and they're all excited and have this lovely version of the future and, and they go in and they hit trucking and then they hit the wall. Yep. The wall of, oh, what do I need that for? Yeah. And, you know, like we have said before, trucking is the most conservative of conservative buyers. Oh, yeah. They're just like farmers, you know. We're not going to buy something that's going to potentially completely upend. We don't have the margins to be able to do that. And, you know, we have some other problems that we're trying to deal with. So get your them. stupid tech away. And or worse, it's yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, let me call you back next month, next quarter, next when year. I have time. Yeah, they yeah. don't have time. It's, it's a long, long, long haul, and it's really unfortunate that tech doesn't know that and mm -hmm. doesn't know the ways to speed that process up because there are ways to speed it up. And I think that we have people looking at us and what we've done and kind of trying to model how they kind of move into the trucking area the same way. So I think that's uh, probably a really good summary. Uh, and I think we should cut it there, even though we could continue talking for another hour about what's happened uh, at Collision and all of the things that we got out of it. But I think for now, let's uh, wrap this up. Okay. Everybody, thanks for listening and have a good day. Bye.